First and Second Kings. Moving into, uh, and remember our scheme, our our um, structure here. We're moving from Genesis creation, God's promise, the seed of woman, talking about this one who would come, who would reverse the curse, so to speak, destroy the power of sin. The key persons we've ran into: Abraham, promises to him; Jacob, whose name became Israel; the twelve tribes of Israel; uh, the time in Egypt with Joseph; uh, the blessing of his his sons, the promise to Judah that the lineage would continue. Uh, you know, following all through this, we came uh, to uh, the promised land. They disobeyed. They were afraid they didn't go in the promised land. God punished a generation. Ask the next generation, will you serve me? Will you follow me? Will you honor me in the promised land? And they said, yes, we will. Remember that? that the, the Sinai covenant? Yes, we'll do that. We're going to follow the, the laws. Deuteronomy laid that out for them. Joshua, they conquered the promised land, had great, awesome miraculous things that took place when they were obedient to God, when they trusted Him. Uh, Judges shows the picture of what happens when you get complacent and people do what they want to do in their own hearts, just the the wickedness, the debauchery. Last week, the uh, book of Ruth with a picture from that same season of people who can be faithful even when others are not. Very, very important lesson for us as we increasingly live in an age where people aren't seeking the ways of God and the patterning their lives after Him that we can still obey in spite of what the world may be doing, and God brings his blessings upon those individuals. So we saw that in Ruth, the kinsman redeemer, the foreshadowing, and then this lineage starting uh, with, the, with the grandparents and kind of seeing that this name starting to come out uh, of the one who was yet to come being David, and then the titanic promise that we saw for David that he would uh, always have a descendant seated upon the throne. We come back in January, I'm going to kind of chart for you the key promises that we're tracking through the Old Testament. Some of the covenants to Abraham, to, to Jacob, this one to David, and some of these things where, again, if any one of these doesn't come true, all bets are off. God's not true to himself. He, he said something. He promised something that didn't happen. He's a liar. It's false. And so I'm going to kind of refresh your memory in January because I know in the next three weeks you're going to forget a whole lot. All right. So uh, we'll pick that back up. So that kind of got us through First and Second Samuel. Uh, as David became king, we see that uh, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he wasn't perfect. You know, we saw that pattern in him, an encouragement to us that, uh, you know, we can be people after God's own heart in spite of our failures and our sins uh, not following through. God brings Solomon to be the next king of Israel. And so then we pick up in 1st and 2nd Kings. So there's a handout for you uh, on that. Originally, and I've mentioned this uh, on a number of occasions for us, that these books, the 1st and 2nd Samuel, was actually a a single book. Same thing with Kings. It was one book uh, about Kings. Chronicles is a single book in the Hebrew canon. And actually, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings were actually one book. I put the note in there. It was 1, 2, 3, 4 Kings. And uh, 1, 2, 3, 4 uh, Kings in in the Latin. So they counted actually these four volumes, these two together, that we break into four, were a single book telling the story. What happens is you make a pass through in Samuel with David and Solomon. Well, then you come back in Kings and it adds a little more detail. You get more information about Kings than just David and Solomon. And then when we get to Chronicles here in a few minutes, they make another pass back through looking at another angle of the same Kings. So we're looking at a period of time uh, in these books that start with David uh, as the King of Israel, move into Solomon, 
And remember that Israel is a single nation during this time. It's one united Israel. After Solomon, however, and because of Solomon's unfaithfulness uh, to God and his disobedience in following after false idols, the nation of uh, Israel gets divided. It kind of becomes two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. The northern kingdom goes by the name Israel. And the southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. And this Judah becomes important, and we remember this, because Jesus is said to be from the tribe, from the line, the lineage of Judah, tracing back to David, and this promise here of never ceasing to have a descendant upon the throne. So kind of keep an eye on that pathway uh, as we go through. So we have this, uh, this split that's here within the nation. Over time, they both nations continue in sin and disobedience under the leadership of kings. There are about 20-some kings that we go through. As you cycle through these books, you see these big long lists and all these names. Uh, And the standard for the kings as to whether or not they were a good king or a bad king was what? Obedience or disobedience? Did they come back to, did they follow the covenant, the law that they committed themselves to do? In the northern kingdom, no, they didn't. In the southern kingdom, some did. There were a few who did, and we'll talk a little bit more about them and the pattern we see with that in a minute. But they, you know, neither of them were totally faithful, but we did see a little bit of a glimmer of hope here in the Judah lineage. But ultimately and finally, both nations wind up in exile, meaning God sent as a punishment because of their disobedience, their neglect of the covenant, their uh, waywardness, their idolatry. Uh, God sent a foreign invader, another country, to come in and to overpower them and to rule them and to carry them off into slavery in foreign lands. And they spent a number of years in exile before, and we'll kind of pick up at the end of Chronicles, there is a return to the land under the rule of Persia. The Persian king kind of came to the philosophy to say, you know what, we're going to rule these people, but I think we'll have better, happier servants if we let them go live in their lands and we put a king over them and we kind of rule from a distance and we just collect taxes and stuff from them. So we kind of relented a little bit and we'll also see a really neat thing about this Persian king here. Back to... God working in people's hearts. Because this whole promise from Abraham, we got all this part back here. We get to this season and it's another time where it looks like the challenge of God. How can he bring his promises from Genesis to pass? Because people botch it up all the time. We always make mistakes. We, we never get it right. Can God do anything good out of these sinful wayward people? Praise God, he can. All right, there's hope for us, you know, as we see these pictures fleshing out. So uh, we see them. This is kind of the time window we look at. It's about a 400-year period here from David into Solomon, the divided time, exile, coming back into uh, the land when it's over. So the author of Kings is still unknown. Traditionally, if you do much research and study, you're going to see Jeremiah's name set forth quite a bit. uh, But a little greater detail in looking at stuff, it looks like most likely was not Jeremiah, but again you'll see that name that's thrown out there. Other candidates are Ezra, uh, who was a scribe, Ezekiel the prophet. Uh, Not real sure in that, but uh, just some, some ideas. 
this concept here, knowing the divisions and a little bit about these prophets will become important as we get to the minor prophets. You remember we talked about several categories of scripture. There's the law first five books. There's the writings like Proverbs, uh, the book of Psalms, wisdom, literature, Ecclesiastes, things along those lines. There are history books. We're kind of in the history books right now with this. And then there are the books of the prophets. These prophets will, can get very confusing and you really, you're looking at you're going, man, what in the world is all this about? What you've got to get about the prophets is where they fall in the scheme of all this stuff. Some of the prophets came warning them about their sin before they were carried off into exile. And when you put a prophet here, when there's the divided kingdom, and he's speaking to Israel, but he's praising Judah, you're like, oh, now I get it. They had the bad, wicked kings leading them astray, but they had some faithful kings and God speaking blessings over them. But they got their rebukes in there as well. Others of the prophets showed up during the exile period here. And you know what they said? Shame on you. Shame on us for having done this. And they remind them of the covenant and what God wanted from them, what they didn't do. And they said, this is why you're here, because you failed back in this part. So some of them came and appeared during the exile period to encourage the people. And others of them came on the return, on the backside of this, to say, now that you're coming back into the land, here's what God requires of you. These are the expectations. And so you have this reminder uh, that's coming in there. So that's where the prophets really becomes important in this scheme of the historical part of it. Got that? So we'll get to them later, but just kind of jog your your memory there for that part of it. Uh, This was likely written around 560, 540 B.C., part of the time in exile. Uh, the purpose is basically just continuing to tell the story of the monarchy in Israel. These are the kings and how they ruled, how they reigned, uh, and how God worked in in spite of them in many instances, but through them in other times. Let's look at a couple key verses. First Kings chapter 1, and man, there are a whole lot in here. These key verses, it's not like there's a you know magic thing that references that. I just kind of look through, look at some research stuff and go, oh, I like that one. We'll talk about that one tonight. So th- these key verses, just some really neat things. If there are big covenants, things like that, I bring those up. First Kings chapter 1 verse 30 Uh, God says as I swore to you by the Lord the God of Israel saying Solomon your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place even so I will do this day and so that's God's promise that uh, David's son Solomon and remember Solomon is the son of what woman? Bathsheba. So you remember that that scene from David's life and the sin uh, against God there, that child dying. Their next child was Solomon, and Solomon's the one who succeeds David. So you know, even out of that sinfulness, God's still able to bring glory to himself and continue his promises uh, for mankind going forward. First uh, Kings chapter 9. If you want to flip over there a couple pages. Verse 3, this is God appearing to Solomon after the temple has been built. Let me kind of jot the temple up here to remind myself about this in a minute. David, you may remember at the end of Samuel, 
looked at his big palace and said, man, I live in this great palace and God's in a tent out there, you know, the tabernacle. He said, I want to build God a, a nicer, you know, better building for the ark. And God's like, I don't need that. I don't, I don't dwell in structures made by man. But he knew that David really had it in his heart. So he told David, David, you won't build that structure for me, but your son Solomon will. So then David made preparations, gathered a lot of supplies and stuff and left it. Solomon built the temple uh, in the midst of all this when God came to Solomon and asked him what he would desire. And you may remember Solomon prayed for wisdom and God granted him wisdom. So we speak of wise King Solomon. So nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 3, uh, at the dedication of this, as the Lord said to him, this is to Solomon, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. It's a really significant thing. When you think about the temple, God's dwelling place, God says, um, I have, what do you say? Sanctify? What's the word he used there? Consecrated. Consecrated this house, and then God says, I will dwell in this place. Temple. God dwelling there. Got that? Temple. God dwelling there. We'll pick that back up here in a few minutes. Not from an Old Testament perspective, but New Testament. 1 Kings chapter 12. Verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So now here's a king. And what nation did he just reference? So this is the divided kingdom, so he's here. This is the northern king. He just referenced the nation of Israel, and he told them they were going to Jerusalem in Judah to the temple that Solomon built to offer sacrifices. They're now a divided kingdom. He didn't like them any longer, so he said, no, you don't have to go there anymore. God doesn't dwell there. We'll just make a place, and we'll worship God here. And so he established two golden calves, idols, and said, this is where you can worship. And the two places were Bethel and Dan. Just making some notes as we go through here. Part of it is because I'll forget here in a few minutes. Um, 1 Kings chapter 17 now. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, Ahab a wicked, wicked king of the north, uh, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my words. There's a three-year famine that Elijah, uh, Elijah predicted, and that did actually come to pass and caused a lot of angst and frustration. Uh, just shows God's sovereignty, his control, and how God used this as a way ultimately ultimately and finally to glorify himself. Second Kings, uh, let's look at chapter 8. It's not all bad and gloom and doom. Second Kings chapter 8. Verse 19, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. This isn't the only reference. There are several of those where God, you kind of get this continued promise to David that he's going to have a descendant upon the throne. So he's going to punish Judah. There's going to be uh, severe consequences and discipline for their sin, but he's not going to snuff them out because of the promise uh, that he made to David. All right, first, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 7. 
17. This begins the exile, and this occurred. That is the exile of being carried off to foreign lands because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So you see the reason that they were going into exile. Uh, Chapter 22. Keep flipping a little bit to your right. 22 verses 1 and 2. Josiah was 8 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosketh. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Uh, so we see an eight-year-old. That's really cool that God takes an eight-year-old established as king and uses him to bring glory to himself. And you see here, again, this measure is that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. Now, David wasn't his direct father, but David is his descendant, coming back to a man after God's own heart. So we see that measure uh, that is there. All right, last one for us here, First Kings chapter 24. Second Kings, I'm sorry. Verse 2, the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and bands of the Parasites and sent them against Judah. Sorry, that wasn't there. And sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. So there God brings these uh, warring factions and nations against them. Okay, so there's a couple key verses. Let's talk about some themes that we see throughout this. Uh, we see that and are reminded constantly obedience to God is priority number one. God measures our walk, uh, our life against his word. Are we obedient to him and his word and his plan? In spite of what our circumstances are, in spite of what others are doing around us, we give account to God in response to his word and our our journey and obedience to his word. And we see this you know, change over time. Solomon started out really, really well. You come back to 1 Kings and, and uh, you know, we kind of end with David. And we pick up with Solomon. And Solomon prays for wisdom. You're like, man, that's good. He's seeking after God. God gives him wisdom. He builds the temple. He spends four years building this incredible temple uh, to house the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God was going to dwell, uh, really is off to a good start. But he started to slip. He spent four years working on the temple. He spent the next 13 working on a palace for himself. Like, oh, wow, okay. So, And it was grand and it was awesome. And he became very powerful, became very wealthy, became very, very well known. Not only did he then establish himself with great riches, great uh, prestige, with great fame and great influence, uh, in that Solomon began to think from a human perspective about establishing that kingdom, guarding that kingdom, guarding his stuff. And so you know what he started to do? He started thinking that it would be important to build alliances with nations around them. Why would that be important? Because when they know you're rich and they know you're wealthy, then they will come and try and take your stuff. You know how you form alliances with these other nations? By marry. 
by marriage. Yeah, he married some of the wives and the women of, of, within the royal families of other places so that, hey, when the king's daughter lives here in the palace, the king's not bringing his army to destroy my city, okay, because his daughter is here. So he started this intermarrying, and his, uh, his marriages are epic, you know, legendary. You know, the, the 700 wives and the concubines, and man, it's just, you talk about a whole lot of stuff that began to happen, but what does Scripture say happened to Solomon in that? Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 to see what happened to Solomon as a result of marrying these foreign wives. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Dude, I was going to say, it, <laughs> Gary, Gary took the words right out of my mouth. God gave him all that wisdom and he went and did what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Bro, I don't even know. But look at what happened. And his wives turned away his heart. Y'all don't tell Shelly what we talk about in here, do you? I, I was just thinking, that's, that's not going to go well. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And so this sets in, and we begin to see this drift that becomes, and God's punishment comes upon Solomon. The kingdom is taken away from him. The kingdom becomes divided because of his disobedience and him allowing these, these women to lead him uh, into disobedience to God. And so the blessings that we see for Solomon, for all of the kings who come, for the people who sit under these kings, their measure is obedience to the covenant. And remember, they signed up for the covenant. It wasn't like it was forced upon them. You know, Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. And they said, we will serve the Lord. We will do this. We will follow him. They committed themselves to it, and then they rejected it. The issue comes for us asking ourselves, are we being obedient? Doesn't matter what your neighbor's doing. Doesn't matter what somebody else in the church is doing. Doesn't matter what our culture's doing. You will give account of your life, your obedience or disobedience to God and his word for yourself. That, that, that's, that's the challenge for us. It is about our walk and our relationship with God. And what does Scripture clearly teach? When we obey God, God pours out His blessings. When we disobey, there is rebuke, there's punishment, there's discipline that comes. Number two on there, beware the company you keep. You know, we just saw that, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Paul says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. My kids are going to know that verse. They're going to know that verse. They hear it over and over again. And thankfully, you know, we're, we're still in the younger stages and, and uh, haven't had to deal with, uh, with some of the challenges with that. But we constantly try to keep in front of our minds with our kids why we as parents make some of the decisions that we make for them. And we try to tie it back to Scripture. This is one of those key verses in the parenting realm for our children as they grow. Bad company corrupts good character. And we see this uh, throughout these, these uh, books here. Here, First and Second Kings, of, of the idolatry and the associations, the alliances, the intermingling with these other nations. Uh, so basically, we kind of come and ask ourselves: Are there any direct commands from God that we're neglecting? 
You know, are there areas of our lives where we're not living in obedience and submission and surrender to God's word and to his truth? Are there any shifts beginning to take place in our life? Are we allowing a wrong worldview to settle in? Christmas is huge. For me, this is one of those evaluatory points every year to kind of look and say, okay, how are we going to, you know, balance this with where our culture and our world and our society is with, you know, honoring God and honoring Christ in this. And it's a painful lesson for me every single year. It was no different this year. About, about a couple of days ago, Shelly and I were out Christmas shopping. She had the list and she's been working with the kids and getting all this sort of stuff together. So I'm out and I'm, I'm the numbers person. I'm like, $25? Are you kidding me? 40 bucks for that? There's no, look at this thing. It's cheap. And well, I'm just, man, I'm laying it on about my goodness. You know, how much are we spending on these kids for stuff? Well, then we're getting home and I'm sorting back through the bills and working on the budgets and the numbers and all this kind of stuff. And I, I pull out, you know, the list that I'd put together to help Shelly and the kids and had hers there as well. So I'm looking at mine and seeing the stuff on my list, realizing, well, I need this stuff, you know, so I'm walking through, you know, these $80 running shoes that I need now, and why, you know, I did this half marathon, I'm, you know, I deserve these now, so I'm kind of, and, and literally, as I'm going through this, justifying my expenses, which were way more expensive than anything that was on the kids list, in the pile of stuff, I'm like, oh, God, why do you do this? In the pile of stuff is the World Vision catalog, where you buy animals and different supplies for people in third world countries. I'm like, oh, for 60 bucks, I can buy four chickens and feed people for the next 10 years or get my $80 running shoes. That hurts. That hurts, you know. And I mean, that's just how God kind of works. He, he just, he's always working and doing that. And these shifts are so subtle. We see it with Solomon. Here's four years for God's temple and 13 for mine, you know, serving God and, and, and uh, just being led astray. And creep begins to happen. These things creep into our lives very subtly, very slowly until we're way off center and, and we don't even realize it. It's the, the frog in the, the kettle of water. You know, if you've got boiling water and you toss a frog into it, what's he going to do? Psh, hit and jump out of there. Put him in the cold water, turn the heat up slowly. He stays in a lot longer. I don't know if they really stay in the whole time, but you know, that, that's the old analogy that goes. Okay, number three, beware spiritual letdowns. We mentioned this about salvation earlier. This is 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah. Man, this is one of the most fun stories that, you know, tell teenagers and kids. The showdown of the prophet of Baal on the mountaintop, you know, you put the offerings there, you put the water on it. Uh, the prophets of Baal dance around. Elijah taunts them. Potty humor in the Bible. You know, 1 Kings 18, they're trying to get their, you know, Baal to, you know, consume the offering and they're cutting themselves and doing this stuff. And Elijah says, maybe he's in the bathroom. He's occupied yell a little bit louder you know so like oh man he's he's taunting him he's teasing him nothing happens elijah pours the water on you know wets the offering steps back and says we're going to see whose god is who and so god you know sends down the fire laps up the offering the stones around i mean just everything total you know victory there he slaughters the the 300 prophets is it 300 500 400, 3 to 5, whatever, somewhere in there. Ministerially speaking, it was 1,000, you know. Uh, so, he, you know, he wipes out all the prophets of Baal. And you're thinking, I mean, this guy is strutting through the streets. I mean, yeah, look at what we did. Look what God did. I'm his man. You know, I'm, I'm God's representative of all this. And Jezebel says, you know, may you be like the prophets that you just killed. You know, this, this wicked woman, one woman speaks uh, a death threat against him. And Elijah loses it, runs off into the wilderness, sits down under a tree with his tail between his legs and says, God, just kill me because this woman's coming after me. <laughs> it's like, really? Really? That, that you're, th- this is going to happen now? But we see when, the, when you're on the mountaintop, guess what's next? Coming into the valley. When you're on the top, 
nowhere but down. And then we do, when you're in the bottom, there's nowhere but up. But on those mountaintops, and we see it all through Scripture. Jesus and the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, they come down, and bam, right there, the demon-possessed uh, you know, boy that they, the disciples can't get rid of. Jesus uh, you know, goes off into the wilderness, 40 days prayer and fasting. The temptation happens there. I mean, we see after his baptism, into the temptation, we see it over and over again. You know, the disciples, the same thing, where they have these great experiences with Christ and their spiritual opposition. Be prepared and aware and alert for spiritual letdowns. Uh, number four, learn lessons from history, not just the facts. You know, we can look back at history and know details and dates and all this. Uh, the author of First and Second Kings and Chronicles as well, they write saying, don't, don't forget the lessons who are here. Don't just know the characters and the kings and when they ruled. See what they did and what they did well, what God blessed, emulate that. What they didn't do well, don't do that. All right, so you don't have those consequences, and we see that. Uh, the kings who received the most attention, I mentioned this earlier, uh, you kind of ever wonder why there's a rhyme or reason, like why are some kings, there are, you know, a chapter, three chapters written about them, and others, it's just like, you know, four, five verses that's there. Basically, the, the determining factor is if a king moved the people closer to God, his life was highlighted. But if a king got even worse and more sinful uh, than a previous king, he was highlighted as well as the negative example. And so some of them, they're, just, they're kind of, they, they held their own. They allowed idol worship to go on, but another one went from idol worship to, you know, human sacrifice or to trying to, you know, another alliance with a king. And so it kind of did worse. And so that, that guy gets highlighted there. And then finally, we see God's faithfulness. There's this future hope that he puts in front of his people as part of the promise uh, to David. And again, the measure of Judah's kings was they did right in the eyes of God, as did his father David. We saw that with Josiah. The reference back here, the measure was faithfulness to God, as in the example of David. When you look at Israel and the northern kings, the reference of those who did evil, who were wicked in the eyes of God, followed the example of their father, Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam is the one who introduced the worship here in Bethel. Now, I really didn't have a good place to put this, so we're going to take a little pause right here and to pick it up now. Um, Jeroboam brought about this, uh, this worship of calves, golden calves, at Bethel and Dan. Flip to 1 Kings chapter 12. You may still be close to there. I'm sorry, we read that a minute ago about the sacrifice. 1 Kings 16, that's what I'm going to turn to. Now, historically, the exile that took place started with Assyria. Assyria was the nation that came in, and they took the northern kingdom off into slavery. They left a few people in Israel. I think the number is around 30,000. They left back in Israel in the northern kingdom as inhabit inhabitants of the land, and they placed their king over top of them. So now understand this. You've got Israel, a remnant, some people left behind the northern kingdom. And the king who is there is in 1 Kings chapter 16. His name is uh, Omri, O-M-R-I, 1 Kings 16, verse 24. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. 
Now, why do I tell you that tidbit of information? Because Israel, the northern kingdom, had a new capital called Samaria. Because he bought it and he made it the capital. Now, what happened, and it depends on whose version of history you're looking at here. While they're set up in Samaria, the temple is back in Jerusalem. They can't worship. They're now setting a new capital. So they invited priests from Bethel to come and teach them the ways of the law and you know to follow God and how to worship him and stuff. So he comes and teaches them a religion and worship and about the law. Now, what do you think would be the problem with this? They, they've got a bad history. They've been polluted in what they've been doing. So he comes here and starts to teach them. And so they learn this polluted religion in this place of Samaria. Now, what do you think people that live in Samaria are called? Samaritans. Samaritans. Yeah, does that name ring a bell from anything in the New Testament? I'm kind of projecting this out for you. Yeah, so Samaritans come out of here going forward. Now, the Samaritan story is this. They say, we're the ones who are left behind. You all get carried off into exile later. They get 586 after Assyria got defeated by Babylon. And finally, the exile is complete. So you guys got carried off. While you're in Babylon, they messed with your religion. You're the ones who got it all messed up and got it diluted and stuff. And their claim is that they are direct descendants from Joseph, from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. You remember Joseph's two sons? They said, we're descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh, and they have a priestly lineage up through that. So they claim that they are the true Israelites. We're the real Jews. You all are the ones from Judah here who have it polluted. You see this conflict that takes place in the New Testament? The Jews and the Samaritans hating one another. Particularly the story, John chapter 4, Jesus, a Samaritan woman at the well. And she said, you know, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem at the mount. But our people say we should worship here in Samaria at this Who's right? And Jesus said, yeah, we don't worship on a mountain. We worship in spirit and in truth. All right? So this teaching of Jesus. But you see these un- this backstory that always builds in here, this conflict that begins to take place. But through it all is God's faithfulness. That even from polluted religion here, polluted religion here, however it is, when it, as it comes forward, God is faithful to call people to himself from every area. That's the point of the New Testament is Samaritans come to Christ. Jews come to Christ. Gentiles come to Christ. God is faithful. All people are drawn to him. All right. First and second Chronicles. Ditto. There we go. We're good. (laughs) How's that work? (laughs) But no, simply it basically is a rehashing. The thing about Chronicles, as you go through it, a little more genealogies, the lenses of Chronicles, it's like the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all carry some stories and, and some things of Jesus that match, but then they, uh, some of them add different stories, different encounters, different miracles, different teachings, different wordings of that. So you get different perspectives of the same thing that's happened, but all of them together give you a bigger picture. First and Second Samuel, David and Solomon. Saul, David, and Solomon, start of the monarchy. First and Second Kings, all the other you know kings in here, this. Chronicles comes back, and it starts over again with David back at the beginning, all the way back through the exile. But the view, the lenses through Chronicles is worship. 
temple worship, following God, being obedient to him. It's written from a priestly perspective. Basically, the writer of Chronicles is saying, this is why you wound up in exile. Remember this whole timing here? Chronicles was written after the exile's over because Chronicles ends with promises and with verses. And we're going to look at one here in just a minute. Uh, it ends with verses about the king of Persia and what was taking place. So you can only write about what the king of Persia did and how he sent people back after the fact. All right, They're telling the story of what happened uh, in this. So a couple of themes in theology, very simple. People will sin. We've seen that, but it's just a reminder. People will sin. Religion is insufficient. The temple, right here, remember this temple thing? Solomon built this huge, massive temple within 150 years, boom. Disrepair, you know, falling down. It was a building. God dwelling there didn't matter because the people's hearts, just like the temple, the building, they forgot about it and didn't repair it. So did their lives. You go back and read through the book of First and Second Kings after Solomon built the temple. Guess what you hear about it for the rest of the story? Nothing. In people's lives, they build a temple, they celebrate God's presence in their lives. Guess what you hear about them after the dedication of the temple? Not as much. You do hear some because of the good kings, but basically they forgot God. Now, the point of this is in Chronicles, looking ahead to the physical building of the temple is insufficient. But in the New Covenant, what becomes the temple? where God consecrates, makes holy, and dwells. The body is the temple. And what's the body's existence? Eternal. Eternal. God consecrates, makes God dwells with his people, and his people will dwell with him for eternity. So this foreshadowing of the temple, this religion stuff, never going to cut it. Never going to cut it because of our sin. Relationship with God, redeemed through Christ, that's going to last because of God's power to save us. The importance of God's word, uh, talk about the covenant, but also, I mean, you see all the different books that are in these chronicles that this uh, compiler of chronicles pulled forth. And then the restoration... Now, people were coming back to the land. Basically, the author, the writer of Chronicles was reminding them, when you come back, here's what God expects of you. And it's the same thing that was expected before. Follow God, obey his word and his teachings. Uh, let's go to the end of Second Chronicles. Flip over there, read this one verse for you, and we will be done. Second Chronicles chapter 36 is where we are. Verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So see, Jeremiah, prophet, Cyrus, Persia, all this here, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. So why did this take place? Because God moved in the heart of this king. Believing king? Serving king? Not starting with, but God stirred in his heart. God is in control. This whole path movement here, God's got it. He's in control. So God moved in his heart, put in writing, verse 23. Thus says the king of Persia, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you. Let him go up. 
Because if you want to go back to your land, to your place to live, to serve the God that I'm serving now, as he's called me to, to rebuild this temple, to reestablish worship, you guys head on back. And we won't cover it now, but Ezra starts out. You look at Ezra chapter 1, verse, first three verses. It tells the exact same story. Totally ties it together. This decree from Cyrus, king of Persia, starting off Ezra says, You know what happened? Cyrus, king of Persia, made this decree, and here's what we did. And he tells the story of coming back into the promised land and reestablishing worship and service to God. All right, four books. Woo, 35 minutes. Knocked it out tonight. Sounds done. <laughs> Robbie's taking notes over here. Uh, no, so... Um, Next week, remember, in the worship center with CMU 19th in here, bring some finger foods. We'll have our Christmas party and uh, be dismissed for our Christmas break. Uh, Fred's back here, so after we pray, if you want to continue on in some uh, intercessory prayer for a number of individuals on our list. And Fred, we need to make sure we add Ron Fletcher to that. I don't know if you got the word or not, but Ron was taken to the hospital this morning uh, with some back issues. They, they came and got him from the post office by ambulance. So we'll pray for Ron tonight. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, uh, I, I love your word. God, this has been such a fun study for me just to be able to go back and, and look through, uh, Lord, these books where I, I've preached and taught and read through uh, these, these accounts, uh, these recollections of your hand of activity over and over again. And Lord, I love being able to come in here on Wednesday nights and just uh, re- retell a few of these encounters. Lord, speak about the truth of, of you that we see from this. So Lord, there's so much to be explored, so much depth here that we're not even beginning to scratch the surface. But God, I thank you for the grand narrative of Scripture. That God, you have made promises and you have been faithful to those promises. And Lord, when it looks like the, the candle is about to be snuffed out, that it's the end of the road, that there's no way forward. God, you move and you do a work in the heart of a Persian king. And Father, reverse the course of, of your people and their, their position and their status uh, and all of these things. And God, you do it for your glory and your honor to make your name known. Father, there's still much that we will cover, uh, we will look at through the writings and through the prophets, uh, but Lord, it's all pointing forward to you, and uh, Lord, we're going to end, and we're going to come to a point where there's a season of quiet, a season of stillness, and a 400-year silence, as it was spoken of this last week, Father, where the nation of Israel didn't hear, and there wasn't much activity taking place, but then, Father, out of that silence, and out of that darkness, and out of those wanderings, Lord, your Son came and made a new way for us to become your children, that, Lord, all of these covenants and all of these uh, temples and all of these ways and all of these things, Father, were ultimately and finally fulfilled in him once and for all, that, Father, we become your temple, that you dwell within us to give us every resource that we need to be able to obey you, to bring you glory and honor in our lives, and, Father, experience the fullness of you in a way that we never thought possible. Lord, Jesus said that he came, uh, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but Jesus came that we may live life and live it to the full. So we thank you for that full and abundant life that's promised and made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us go forth and live for him in all that we do. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.